Thank you for listening to the weekly messages of New Providence Primitive Baptist Church. To subscribe to our podcast, hear other messages, or learn more about us, please visit nppbc.com. Thank you for the opportunity to stand. We pray as we open our hearts to your word, that you would open your word to our hearts. We trust that in all of this, we must be honest, Lord, that as we look into your truth, we pray that that truth will speak clearly to us, may we see, Lord, what you want us to see, but most of all, may we see you. Thank you for what you're going to do as we pray for every heart that's here. We ask it all believing as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, truth is, I'm... Yes. I know you're starting, and I know you just prayed, but I could catch you in time. I would like for us to all pray for the woman in faith. Yes. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that. Um, let's, let's do that as we lead tonight, and, and maybe we all can just join together and Lift up a prayer for Norman and Faith. Norman, for those of you that don't know, he's been here a couple times this week. And uh, was it a stroke? Is that what they said? They think it was a heart attack or he had either aspirated. Hmm. And, and it, didn't, it closed his breathing off. But, so. um, but they revived him, but they're not certain if there's brain activity. No, no. Uh, they, they need our prayers tonight, so let's remember Norman and Faith as we pray. And uh, we will have a prayer for them before we leave tonight. Remember their Thank children you. also, Tommy. Some of their children are not saved. Yeah. So remember them also. Amen. Amen. Anybody else? Thank you for that. Uh, the, the struggle for me for the last day or day and a half for sure is recognizing that there's there's no way to get to the end if we, uh, you, you know, we can go fast and shallow or we can go slow and deep. Uh, you can't do both with time constraints. Uh, so I've just uh, really struggled with that praying uh, earnestly yesterday and today as well about how to finish this because there's there's no way to catch it completely and uh, I don't want to miss uh, something that he wants addressed so I've really tried to be careful and pray the Spirit of God would lead us most of all and so I'm trusting that but uh, my heart's kind of settled on something specific, knowing that um, in the next hour and 29 minutes, we, or 20-something minutes, um, we, we could tackle a subject or maybe two and, and dive deeply, but, but I feel that that would be a, a discredit to all of you that have committed the week in hopes of seeing a little more of the glimpse of the future. And so, as I prayed about that this week, and I'm going to say this and we're going to start, right? We have to, we're at time to um, I, I want to share with you how to study this book um, as best I know how, right? I, I am not the, not the, the best at it, um, but I want to give you clearly 
something that you can take home tonight that will serve you tomorrow and the next day and the next day as you dive deeper into this book. Because um, if your commitment to understanding the book of Revelations is only to attend and listen to me, you missed the point. Amen. The Bible said, blessed is he that readeth the book. All right, the blessing is incumbent to the reader. And it is important if you want to understand Revelations, I want to give you some very simple truths tonight about what we haven't studied. Right? I'm going to try to be careful not to go backwards. I tend to do that. But, but I want to try to go forwards and give you clear help and direction as, as we look at from a high level what is going on chapter by chapter and that you understand how to look at and study this book so that when you get to the end, or at least when you begin your own study, and I said this on day one, a proper study of the book of Revelations requires an understanding of the 65 books before it. All right, Don't discredit that. All of the scripture in the 65 books before the 66th book will help you understand this book. As a matter of fact, it creates an enormous amount of insights concerning the truth found in the book of Revelation. So, let me start with this. This book is meant to be taken literally, right? It is not, it is not a mysterious high-in-the-sky uh, mystery that God has, has for no apparent reason just given to us so we scratch our heads and wonder about. Does that sound like God? Right? Does it sound like God to give us a book that nobody would ever understand? No. 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 Bill said no. I agree with Bill. I, I don't that doesn't sound like God. As a matter of fact, he gave us the book of all books to culminate everything he started from Adam until now. This book, and only this book, can bring closure to everything that God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit has instituted on planet Earth and for humankind. Everything that we know of that God has started throughout the history, the history of mankind in this universe, culminates, finishes, stops, ends in the single book of Revelations. There is, as far as I'm concerned, no other book any more important than this book in the Bible. And I do not believe that God intended it for it to be a mystery for you and I. Amen. That, that is incongruous to the other 65 books that he expects me to read and expects me to study and expects me to understand. So I do not believe, I believe we've been sold a bill of goods throughout our lifetimes. Many of us, it's been preached to us, and some of us have even preached it, right? That, that you, you just can't understand some of that stuff. I refuse to believe that, that a book that finishes all that he started would be incomprehensible to the ones he sent it to. That does not make sense. I believe the Word of God is meant to be taken for what it says, unless it says to take it otherwise. Amen. Now, when you read the book of Revelations, you should take it literally, unless it tells you to take it a different way. You say, what do you mean? Well, in chapter uh, number 10, I think it is, wherever that the 
the seal is opened in the fiery mountain. He said it's like a fiery mountain. When he said like, there's your clue, right? There's your indication that what he's fixing to say next is symbolic of what reality. It was not what he... He symbolically gave you something that was reality to him, right? It wasn't mystic. It wasn't something he dreamed up or conjured. It wasn't something something from out of nowhere. He saw it, and he gave you what it was like, all right? And he tells you what it's like. And therefore, we know in this book that what is meant symbolically, he tells us that it's symbolic. And if it is not said in that manner, you should take it literally. Amen. How else do you study Scripture? Right? If you study the book of Romans, do you study it with the with the thought in mind? You really don't mean what he's saying. Right? No, you don't. You look at the text, and what does the text say? What does the text mean? And what does the text mean to me? That's how you study any book of the Bible. Revelations is no different. If Revelations was different, he would have given me the passcode, right? The, the, the code, the, the thing you wear, and it opens up all the mysteries, right? No, it's not a mystery. It is a simple book, and it is the most organized book in the Bible. It is logical, it is reasonable, and it is rational. What it tells us is things we have never seen, but it does it in a manner that we as his children are meant to understand what he is going to do here on out. And I don't think God will hide that. I do not believe that God wants to hide that from us. He made it clear, blessed is he that reads this book. He wants you to read this book and to understand it. Now, he gave John a very simple outline as he began this book. I want you to write down what was, what is, and what is to come. We covered what was in chapter number one. Chapters two and three was the present, the church age. What we know since the day of Pentecost until 2022, that is the church age. And that is the present. And he wrote concerning the present, right? It's a very simple outline. Write what was, write what is, and write what will come hereafter. And we know at the end of, or the beginning of chapter number four, verse number one, he said, after these things, after what things? After the church, okay? So clearly he guides us right in to the third part of the outline, and that is what is coming, The first thing we see as we look into there is the glorified God Almighty sitting on his throne. We see the Holy Spirit around that throne. We see four living creatures whom I've never understood the likes of. But we also see 20 and 4 seats and 20 and 4 elders, or prosbuteros is the name for them. Ambassadors is what they're called, or in another word, representatives. And we find these 24 elders, and we've already covered this, so I'm going through it quickly. But if you're going to follow what I'm going to say next, right, you've got to, you've got to at least stand on the same platform, right? Or we're going to be crossed up by the time we reach multiple other sections. Because throughout the entire rest of the book of Revelations, you will hear the term elders mentioned many, many times. You will hear the word elders mentioned. 
I've given you the proof that I believe the Bible gives to substantiate who the 24 elders are. I believe without a doubt in my heart that the 24 elders are the raptured church of Jesus Christ. Every born-again believer from the beginning of time to 2022 are represented in my mind as the elders that are around the throne of God. Now, I've already given you why I believe those are that. I gave you 10 different Bible references and specifically their own testimony of who they said they were. And that lines up exactly with the born-again believers in Jesus Christ who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, redeemed. Okay? So in my mind and in my heart, the elders are the raptured church of Jesus Christ. Now, if that is correct, you say if... I believe it's true. Now, if you take a different opinion, I want to say this right up front. We're not going to divide over it, right? I'm not going to be bothered, and I hope you ain't bothered. Because ultimately, in the end, it's going to work out just like he says it will. Whether you understood it or I understood it, and we are the blood-washed brethren in Jesus Christ, and we have no right to be offended by anything. I'm simply telling you what it says and what I think it means based on what it said, and not just what it said, but what all this said and this said that combines with it. Scripture interprets Scripture. You do not take any verse of Scripture by itself, Scripture will always be supported by the whole. You cannot make one thing mean something contradictory and then make it fit in the Word of God. Scripture will always interpret Scripture. That brings us to the point, if we believe, and I do, with all my heart, I believe that the elders are the representatives of the raptured church of Jesus Christ. If that is the case, then clearly the first thing that John the Revelator sees when he looks into heaven is the church, which means the church is raptured before the tribulation period begins and before the thousand-year reign of Christ. Right? So clearly, based upon our belief that the 24 elders are the raptured church of Jesus Christ, we have taken our position. We are premillennialists. Based on that, based on that scripture and our belief that the 24 elders are the raptured church of Jesus Christ. Now, I'd also say, if that's not the church, where are they? Amen. Amen. Anybody? I'm giving plenty of opportunity. I really, if there is any other reference to whom the elders could be, I'd like to dive deeper myself. All right. I, I, I think clearly, at least the scriptures that I had, I gave you 10 different substantiating proofs, that the, including their own testimony, right, which you read in chapters number 4 and was confirmed in chapter number 5. They admitted who they were, and they line up exactly with who he says we are. And so... We're in agreement that the 24 elders are the raptured church of Jesus Christ. Then there's no other position for us to take because the first thing we see is them around the throne. We watch them worship him. And then we see the father and he has a scroll in his hand. And John weeps because nobody's found worthy to open the seals thereof. And as he weeps, one of the elders came to him. The church says to him, don't weep. 
He said, Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the lamb which as it were had been slain, he's come to open the seals. And Jesus steps forth and opens the seals from the scroll. Now what we know about the scroll is that it contains the great tribulation. It contains everything that would happen after is contained within that scroll. And so we know if he looked into heaven and saw the raptured church and the raptured church watched him take the scroll and the raptured church watched him open the first seal thereof to begin the tribulation, which ends when he comes back to reign on this earth for a thousand years, then clearly our position is we believe the church is raptured before the thousand year reign of Christ. Amen. Amen. Right? That, that's, that's where it's at. And, and we, we looked at that by the scripture. So that brings us to the point where we see those scrolls opened. And last night we talked about the four horses of the apocalypse, the four of the first, of the first seven seals that were contained in the scroll. Now, I want to share with you a very important way to study this this book, and then we're going to jump back into the book, and we're going to fly across the top of it, right? And we're going to look down into the chapters very quickly, and we're going to try to go all the way to eternity, right? So that's where we'll start tonight. Number one, as you get into the Great Tribulation, which begins for us in chapters number six, the Lamb of God now has the scroll, and he opens that first seal. And we told you what those seals, those first four were last night, the four men of the or four horsemen of the apocalypse. And the fifth seal was when it kind of halted, and we find that there were martyrs already under the altar of God, crying out, O Lord, how long wilt thou not avenge our blood? Right? We find that people had already by that point in the tribulation been saved and killed for the name of Jesus Christ. And that's Literally what will happen to most in the tribulation is they will die for believing in Jesus Christ. Well, make no mistake about it. Everybody, everybody in the tribulation would die from it if he didn't shorten the days. If he didn't protect them. Some of them are divinely protected. We haven't got there. I don't know if we'll even get there for sure. But we're going to touch on it as we fly across it. But here's how you study it from the seals forward. The most important thing is to remember that the Holy Spirit of God gave this in increments of seven. Remember that as you study it. He gave each of these in increments of seven. The scroll contained seven seals. You will open six seals and there will always be a halt between number six and number seven. Remember that as you study the book. Every time seven is introduced, you will get six of them, but then you will stop and you will be given an explanatory interval. Sometimes it's one chapter, sometimes it's four chapters, but the interval between the sixth and the seventh, whatever you're in, is meant to explain to you other things that were also going on during that first six. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm going to say it again. 
as you study this book, do not forget that as you get through the six seals, it will stop and he's going to give you some information that you didn't have when you started. And he will do that between number six and number seven, whether it be seals, trumpets, or bowls. If you know that, you can study this book. But if you don't know that, you're going to look at this and you're going to, you're going to go from the sixth seal and you're going to be saying, did I miss the seventh? Where is it? And you don't remember that there is an explanatory interval that is in between six and seven so that he can give you more information that wasn't givable during the first six. Does that make sense? So when we get to the sixth seal and it is opened, we have an interval. Let me get to it and tell you what it is. So the sixth seal is open, and it said, and I saw the lamb opened, and I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard as it were a noise of thunder, and four beasts saying, come, um, hang on, I saw, behold, a white horse, that's the first one, let me get to the sixth, there we go, verse number 12, chapter 6, verse number 12, and I beheld when he opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, now, Just a reminder, at this point in the opening of the seals, and remember the seals are the first things to take place. This is what is called the beginning of sorrows, right? And within the first six seals are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And the fourth one is death. And he takes one quarter of the nation of the world's population. Now, I looked up on Google today what is the world's population, and the population counter said almost eight billion people on planet Earth today. In the first part, the first half of, of the, the tribulation, the part which is called the beginning of sorrows, we find two billion people already dead. Let me ask you a question. If we are living in the Great Tribulation, how could we not know there are two billion people dead? You say, well, maybe we're at day one. Well, at day one, we had the first seal that was opened, and there was the man of perdition, the Antichrist, being revealed who comes and declares peace. I don't even know if that happening. Does anybody know of that happening? Have I missed it? And then we have... World War Three, or war, as he called it, the fiery red horse. And then we have famine, the black horse. And then we have death. And when death shows up, two billion people are killed, dead. We don't, we don't have anything in our minds that can compare to two billion dead people. Uh, you combine all the world wars. Uh, I'll bet you could combine every war that's been fought since Adam and Eve, and you ain't going to get two billion people. We get the sixth seal, and it says, I behold, when he opened the sixth seal, lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became this blood and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth 
even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, and when she, when she is shaken of a mighty wind, and the heaven departed as a scroll, when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places, and the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every freeman, hid themselves in the dens, and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. You remember in Matthew 24, maybe it was 25, where the Lord Jesus said, And they will cry for the rocks to fall on us and hide us. Right? That's why all these other scriptures fortify the book of Revelations. Knowing what's been said will help you study the book of Revelation. For the great day of his wrath is come. Verse number 17, who shall be able to stand? That was the sixth seal. When you begin chapter number seven, it's not a seal, right? You're expecting seal number seven, right? But it's not a seal. This is an explanatory interval to where the Holy Spirit stopped the Apostle John. He had already seen an incredible amount of death at that point. And he stops him and he says, hey, I need to give you some other information that you need to know. So he begins chapter number seven. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. Now they're fixing to break bad on this thing, but this other angel descends down and listen to what he said. He says, hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God in their forehead. And I heard, listen, he's given this as information you didn't have when seal number one was opened. What he's telling you now was as seal number one was opened, there was also something else taking place at the very beginning of sorrows. There was something else that God was doing at the same time that seal number one was being opened and then seal two and then seal three and seal four. And all of this chaos worldwide was going on. But while that was going on, there was something else happening. According to verse number verse number four, and I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel, of Judah, and he goes all the way through those. Verse number nine, after this I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number of all nations and kindred and people, right? That's the ones we read about to you last night. The point from chapter number 7, is that at the beginning of the tribulation, God had already chosen 144,000 men, each one of them pure Jewish descent. Each one of them, he knew exactly which tribe they came from, from Jacob's loins. He knew exactly who they were. Do you know that at the destruction of Israel in A.D. 70, that all historical records concerning their Jewish genealogy was lost? Now, I'm told that. I'm obviously not the greatest of scholars, but I read that just the other day. And they said clearly, very few Jews in this world, if any, truly, truly know their lineage all the way back. But guess who does? Amen. Amen. 
And he's already got them picked out if the tribulation is close. Because these men are chosen and then they are sealed by the Spirit of God for a specific work. They are 144,000 witnesses that are chosen to do what? Preach. And why would they preach? So that people would be saved. That's why anybody preaches. 144,000 of them. And they're also sealed so that they will go through the tribulation and not be killed. Only God could do that. Right? You fixing it. When I read through the rest of this hell, you fixing to say, how could anybody live through what takes place on the earth? Well, they, better, they had to be sealed, I can tell you that. So chapter number 7 is important that we understand that it is an explanatory interlude that is meant to take us back to where we started and fill in some of the blanks. Does that make sense? You won't understand this if you study that and don't recognize that between every 6th and 7th, whether it be, whether it be seals, trumpets, or bowls, between number 6 and 7, you will get more information. Right? Recognizing, as that's what it is, it helps you then slide back to day number one say, ah, so when this thing kicked off, he had 144,000 ready to go. He sealed them, the Holy Spirit took them, and then they were broadcast over the face of the earth to preach the gospel everywhere. Were they effective? Hmm. Were they effective? Yes, let me read. After this, I beheld in low a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues. Now what we know by this statement is, is they weren't Jews. It was everybody but a Jew. Listen to what he said about everybody but a Jew. Here's what he said, that I beheld a great multitude which no man could number. They stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And that all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders. Look there. That's the church, the raptured church. And the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, unto John, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? So he asked the question that we ask, right? Who are all these un-Jewish people that have been saved during the tribulation? And John said to him in verse 14, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he that sitteth on his throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, they shall thirst no more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters of God shall wipe away all their tears. Now, when you look at chapter number 8, seventh seal. All right, so now you know that the explanatory interlude that was meant to give you previous information has occurred. And now you are in seal number 7. Here's the other concept to remember when studying the seven trumpets, I mean seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. When you get to number 7, 
it will introduce the next seven. Does that make sense? Why, that makes great sense, right? Knowing that helps me a bunch. Just to know that when I get to number seven, it's going to open up another seven. That is true until you get to the seventh bowl. And the seventh bowl is the end. And he no more to open. It's done. It's done. All right, I don't know if that helps anybody, but that helps me. That helps me study this book. It is given to us in three increments of sevens. There are introduced some threes. We have three woes that are associated with the seven, uh, the seven trumpets. And so there, there, there's some, some other little ones that, that are tucked in there. But basically we got three seals, three trump, uh, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, or vials, or plagues. Those three are all the same thing. I got terribly confused about that for a day or three. Then I realized, oh, he, those are all the same thing. Plagues, files, bowls, it's all the same thing. So when he says one, that's what he's talking about, is one, the seven bowls, or you can call them vials, or uh, chapter 15, I believe, called them plagues. But they're all the same thing. So three sevens. At the end or in between six and seven, you will get explanatory intervals that give you more information about what's going on. And then at the end of the seventh, it will open up to the next seven, and then you'll go through those six, and then you'll have an interlude, and then the seventh, and the seventh will open up to the next seven, and you'll go through those six, and interlude, and then the last seventh is the vile judgments, and that will be the end. Of the tribulation. I better say that. Of the tribulation. And then begins the thousand year reign of Christ. And at the end of the thousand years, the battle of Armageddon. And then eternity forever. No more eternity forever. So so there is a a really easy and I hope for helpful way for you to study this yourself. Because ultimately the key for you to truly grasp... What's in this book is not for me to tell you about it. It's for you to study it yourself. But it helps immensely if you just understand what it is you're going at. Right? Just knowing that, okay, I got three sets of sevens in front of me. And I know between every six and seven, there's going to be a chapter or two giving me some more information about what just happened. And then at the third seventh, it's going to be done. All right? Is that helpful to anybody? It certainly was helpful for, for me. It helped me break this book down to something that wasn't mysterious and, and just way out there and recognize that what the Holy Spirit intended was for every believer to have an opportunity to go at this with just a rational, simple, literal look at what did he say. Okay? We may not, as we look into the future for sure, we may not know exactly what he meant by what he said, right? Especially as he's describing things like locusts with breastplates. I don't know what that is, really. I mean, I, I'm going to take it literal because it doesn't tell me to take it otherwise. So I'm going to take it literal that what he was saying was an extraordinary creature. And that creature came from the abyss. Amen. It was demonic, and it was turned loose by Satan, who was cast out in one of the trumpets. Anyway, so, right, it, so it, it, 
it, it gets pretty stout for the human brain, right? Just to keep grabbing this incredible information. But just remember where you're at, right? What series of sevens you're in and where you're at, whether what you're looking at is an interlude or is it, or is it the, the giving out of something among the seals, trumpets, or vials. All right, that brings us to chapter number eight. When he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of an hour, half an hour. Now, this is where normally somebody throws a joke out, right? It says that's why there'll be no women in heaven because it was silent for half an hour. <laughs> okay, Bill actually was thinking. That, so so you're, you're, you're the one guilty, not me. Uh, I won't say that because I'm going to give you the truth. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm not going to say who, but somebody said that Brian Campbell's not going to be in heaven because there's silence for half an hour. That's on me, I told Bill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're admitting to it, don't you? That's on me, he doesn't call me out, so all right. I have to explain to all the women. The reason there is silence in heaven, I can absolutely assure you, is because what's fixing to happen next has every one of them in awe. They are absolutely in awe at what is fixing to be poured out upon them. If you think two billion people dying in the beginning of sorrows was bad, you ain't seen nothing yet. For a half hour, nobody said a word. And I done looked at these people a bunch. They like to worship. They like to fall down and throw crowns and worship. But for a half hour... They spoke not a word because there's fixing to be a fury poured out upon this world. If you look at the first seven seals and you see the four horsemen of the apocalypse and you see those that were slain under the altar crying out for vengeance and you see from the, the, the sun and the moon and the stars falling to the earth or, or the sun and moon changing colors, one black, the other blood, you know, you, you think, what in the world's going on? But those first four seals were all man-made torment. The peace, right? the world war, the famine, the death. Those, those were all things that humans were doing. But when we get to the next set of seven, these are satanic. God instituted Right? He's fixing to turn loose stuff that's been cooped up for a long time. It's fixing to get bad. The Bible said in chapter number 8, And I saw the seven, seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints and upon the golden altar which was before the throne and the smoke of the incense which come with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand and the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it under the earth and there were voices and thunders and lightnings and earthquakes and the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound the first angel now I'm going to read. I want you to read this yourself. I've already explained to you how to read this book, but I'm going to try to give you a summary form of what takes place in each one of these seals, trumpets. 
Listen to what happens. The first trumpet sounds in verse number seven, and when it comes, and when it comes, hail and fire across the earth is what takes place, burning up one third of it. One third of the earth burned up. Can you imagine? Trees as well as grass, everything green, burned up. Imagine what that does to the to the to the atmosphere. When a third of the earth's carbon dioxide is suddenly gone. I had it in reverse, right? The trees and the plants create oxygen. A third of the oxygen is suddenly disappeared from the earth. I have no idea what that does to creatures or humans, but it can't be good. He burns up a third of the earth with trumpet number one. Verse number eight records the second angel sounding his trumpet and a flaming mountain. Now this is the one where it says it was like a fiery mountain, a flaming mountain. So we're not sure exactly what it is. We might speculate that it was an asteroid or a meteor. I, I don't know. But, but it was like, whatever it was, it was moving. And it was a burning mountain. It was large. And it was cast into the sea. This object destroys one-third of the ships and kills one-third of the creatures in the sea, turning a third of the sea to blood. It's not clear exactly um, if, if where it's at, but... But whatever sea he throws it in destroys a third of the ships and, a, and everything in the water dies. Now can you imagine how awful and putrid and, and it goes beyond. Anybody ever been deep sea fishing? There is nothing like the ocean for fish. Right? They just buy the billion loads of fish in that body of water everywhere. And imagine a third of them dead. And the water, as it were, blood. The devastation is an indictment against mankind for failing to recognize the gift of God's creation. God's taken it away, piece by piece and quick. The Lord's destruction of his creation continues when the third trumpet sounds in verse number 10. Another celestial body falls to the earth. This one, some speculate, is a comet. Nobody knows. He doesn't say it's a comet. But he says it was like... It was falling to the earth and it was burning like a torch. Whatever it was, when it hit, it poisoned one-third of the fresh water on the earth. Think of that for a minute. It poisoned one-third of the fresh water on the earth. John says that many die from drinking the bitter, poisonous water. When the fourth trumpet blows in verse number 12, a third of the sun, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars are destroyed. This particular judgment wreaks havoc on the earth's biological and botanical cycles. A diminished sun means a drastically colder climate, one that's far less hospitable for sustained life. Add to that a dramatic shift in the calendar as the days will be shorter and interrupted by all kinds of eclipses, and that's sure to create unimaginable chaos for those living during that period. That is the fourth trumpet. In the midst of this, after number four, 
What you're going to find in verse number 13 is the introduction of three woes. Now, this is the first time you will see a group of three, and it's only this time. But in between seal trumpet number four and number five, an angel steps forward like an eagle and cries out, whoa, whoa, whoa. And what he's saying is, is there are three more left. And he has to announce their coming because they are so bad. Whoa, whoa, whoa. There are three more trumpets to blow. Chapter number nine describes the horror unleashed by the fifth trumpet. John says a star falls from heaven. But what we know about this star that falls from heaven is it wasn't inanimate. It was alive. It's quite clear who it is, actually. It's Satan himself. Unlike previous mentions of falling stars, this one isn't a celestial body but a created being. And he's been given the key to the bottomless pit which he uses to release the demons God has bound. You'll see that in verse 1 and 2. The demons take on physical forms similar to locusts and they swarm over the face of the earth. While these demons are set free to terrorize the world, they are limited in what they can do. Verse number 4 says that they're commanded not to hurt any of the earth's vegetation, nor are they allowed to do anything to any of those who bear the seal of God in their foreheads. Obviously, the 144,000 Jewish uh, Jewish evangelists and their converts are protected from these locusts. But the demons are permitted for five months to torment but not kill anyone without the seal of God. John says the demons will sting like scorpions and their victims will be in such agony and long to be dead, long for death, but it won't come. Unlike normal locusts, these demons, it says, have a king. John gives us his name in Hebrew, which is Abaddon, and in Greek, which is Apollyon. Both of those names mean destroyer. That's the fifth trumpet. The sixth trumpet signals the release of four more angels who have been bound at the river Euphrates, verses 14 and 15. We can assume these are fallen angels since Scripture never refers to holy angels as ever being bound. These four angels have been bound by God up until this point. Then they are loosed. The sixth trumpet looses these four fallen angels. They represent another segment of Satan's army unleashed as part of God's judgment. Unlike the demons released under the fifth trumpet, these demons, the four, are able to kill. And with a massive army of 200 million These are demons we're talking about here. 200 million demons. They wipe out one-third of the world's population with fire, smoke, and brimstone. All right? Now, 
We started with 8 billion people and we lost a quarter. That's 2 billion. We're down to 6 billion now and we just lost a third. That's 2 more billions. Now 4 billion people have been killed. We can't comprehend this level of, of, of destruction. I mean, you can try, but, but I don't believe the human brain can truly process the death and the chaos and the terror and the horror that's going on on planet Earth while this is happening. Hallelujah to that. That's another reason I believe he said, blessed is he that reads the book. Right? If you know where you're headed, this becomes a comfort to you, not a horror. That was the sixth trumpet. In the final verse of chapter 9, John writes that in spite of all the judgment the Lord has poured out on the world, the remaining people do not repent of their sins. Instead, they curse God, harden their hearts, and continue to pursue their sinful desires. Now, what did I say happens between the 6th and the 7th? There's an explanatory interval that takes place. And this, by the way, is the largest interval you'll find that occurred between the 6th and the 7th trumpet. Two woes are past, 5 and 6. We still have one woe to go, which is the 7th trumpet. But before we get there, the Holy Spirit says, now, let's go back and let me tell you some more about what's going on on earth while all this madness is being poured out. That brings us to chapter number 10. Prior to the sounding of the final seventh trumpet in chapter 10, the Lord gives John another interlude, interval from the destruction. In verse number 1, John sees a mighty angel descend to the earth. The angel stands with one foot on the earth and the other on the sea. Verse number two, graphically demonstrating that while Satan has temporarily, temporary reign over the earth, ultimate authority and dominion still belong to the Lord. The angel carries the scroll that Christ opened, and John hears the angel roar like a lion, followed by seven peals of thunder. As John prepares to write down what he heard in the thunder, he is warned by a voice from heaven to keep those things secret. That's verse number four. Now, I, I want to stop right there because if God wanted anything to be a secret, he would have told it to be of kept a secret. Otherwise, I believe he means for all of this to be something we read and literally try to understand as it is written. It's not a secret. It's not a mystery. It is a book, and it was given for our blessing. Since thunder is often used to depict God's fury, that's probably why those seven peals of thunder took place, but it's safe to assume that the message John hears that is kept secret is one of further judgment, and it likely too terrifying to reveal. So if he don't want it, he if he don't want it known, he won't tell it. Otherwise, I believe everything else we're supposed to know. Like that's just an important concept to grasp. None of this is meant to be a mystery to you. If it was, he wouldn't have told it. 
The same voice from heaven then orders John to take the scroll and to eat it. That's verses 8 and 9. John does and says the taste is sweet in his mouth, but it's bitter in his belly. It's illustrative of how believers view the coming of Christ. It's sweet because the Lord will reign in glory over his creation, but it's bitter because his return brings destruction and damnation to the world. Chapter number 11, we are still in an explanatory interval. Chapter number 11. So we have 10 and now 11. It will also be 12 and I think also 13 where he is going to fill in some gaps of stuff we didn't know of what's going to take place during the tribulation period, that seven-year period. Chapter 11. Now before... The seventh trumpet sounds. There's another glimpse of God's marvelous grace in chapter 11. We meet two other characters, two of the greatest characters in all of Scripture. We don't even know their names. John's descriptions of these, description of these two witnesses is vague, perhaps intentionally so, but we do know that the world hates them. Their message of repentance doesn't fit into a rebellious, enlightened world that has already ignored so many obvious warnings and judgments from God. We also know that God protects them from a, protects them for a time from the hostility of the world. John says in verse number 5 that if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. That's a handy protective apparatus there. Uh, you can't touch them, right? What we also know, though, is the Lord unleashes these two witnesses to preach the gospel to a hostile world, but only for the first 42 months of the seven years. So they preach. I believe they start preaching on day one of the tribulation, which is actually the day after we were raptured. I'm calling it a day. may start the same day. But we're raptured and the tribulation begins. From that point, I believe on the first day. See, that's why he's giving you this explanatory interval. He's saying, hey, we've went through all this stuff and, 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 and we got four billion. We got half the, the world's people dead. But let me take you back and tell you what also God's been doing. He, raised, he sent these two witnesses down. Now, we speculate about who they are, but the Bible doesn't say, and I believe it doesn't say on purpose. I believe it doesn't say for the same reason that, that Peter, James, and John, when they saw Moses and Elijah with the Lord transfigured, they wanted to make them all a temple. And then God beamed out of heaven and tuned them up and said, you don't make nobody a temple but my son. He said, hear him. Right? And so they don't tell us who these two are, but I can tell you, they come on a mission, and their mission is also to preach. And they begin preaching, and they preach for 42 months. That's what the Bible says. They preach for 42 months. Let's see. Um, once the witness's ministry is complete, the beast, right? That is, the beast himself comes out of the pit and kills them both. Now, John says the people don't even bury them, verse number 7. Instead, they leave the bodies in the street for three and a half days, and this will take place in the streets of Jerusalem, verse number 8. The eyes of the world on these two dead bodies, celebrating their demise. Now, think about this. 
There's no possible way that the eyes of the world could be on these two bodies a hundred years ago. But today, could the eyes of the world be anywhere on anything today? Amen. Amen. Yes. You know what that means, don't you? He'd come any, any moment now. Right? That's just one more thing that sets the stage for the, for the rapture of the church and the beginning of, a tri- of the tribulation period. 42 months are gone by. The beast, Satan, comes out. He's allowed to destroy these two witnesses. Three and a half days they lay in the streets of Jerusalem while everybody parties. They are so happy. I kept thinking to myself, boy, if this happened around December 25th, I can see the significance of them giving gifts, not because the Savior was born, but because his messengers were dead. Now, that's me having fun with my little brain. I have no idea when it was, but I know according to the Word of God, they partied. They sent gifts to one another. They celebrated. They Everyone kept CNN on all day long so they could keep staring at them two dead witnesses that were preaching against their sinful, ungodly, wicked lives. But then, three and a half days later, while the eyes of the world is on them, these two witnesses raised from the dead. The two witnesses lie dead in the street while the unbelieving world celebrates, even to the point where they exchange gifts to commemorate the deaths of these two prophets. But after three and a half days, the two witnesses rise from the dead, causing understandable panic for everyone watching. In verse number 12, a verse from heaven commands them to come up here, and they do. And in the same hour, there is a massive earthquake that kills 7,000 people and destroys portions of Jerusalem, verse 13. In response, John says the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. That's verse 13. The point of this short interlude before the seventh trumpet is clear. God will never be without a witness. Think about that. It don't matter the chaos. It don't matter the judgment. God will never be without a witness. He had Ezekiel. He had the weeping prophet Jeremiah. He had Daniel. He always had a witness, even during judgment. John closes chapter 11 with a final victorious statement. As he closes it, the seventh trumpet blows and the voices of heaven cry out. Now, we don't know what the seventh trumpet is yet, so be careful not to think the interval is over. Just know that the seventh trumpet is is sounding. The kingdom of the world, they said, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. While the Lord has officially reclaimed the world, there is still plenty of destruction and wrath ahead. Chapter number 12 remains part of the interval. We hear in this chapter about the woman, the child, and the dragon. What John is going to tell us in chapter number 12 is how Israel's doing through this. How what Israel's going through through this tribulation period, this, this whole span of time. Chapter number 12 is John's graphic depiction of Satan's incessant persecution of the woman, which is Israel, of the Messiah, which is the child. 
And obviously, Satan is the dragon. The woman in John's vision, verse number one, is Israel, and her child is Christ. The dragon, John describes as Satan, who always is trying to destroy the Christ. Verse 7 describes war taking place in heaven. Now imagine this now. Verse, at this particular point of the tribulation. See, this is something we didn't know. And he wouldn't have known had it not been for these intervals given to tell us these details. While all this destruction is going on, there is also war taking place in heaven. Not the whole time, but a specific time. And we find it's going to be right around that seventh trumpet blowing. A war takes place in heaven. While Satan and his demons were cast out of heaven after their first rebellion, they still have access to it. We know that from the book of Job, right? Job, or or the devil goes unto God and they're talking about Job, right? But in this war, in Revelation number 12, God's angels overcome the forces of Satan and cast them out of heaven down to the earth. Now think about this. What was up there is now down here. All of them. All of them. Not only all them, but they just lose 200 million from the abyss. My God. Once those demons joined the ones who had previously been released from the pit and from the Euphrates, the earth will be overrun with demonic forces. Now remember, who's not, on, who's not performing the holding back of evil on the earth? The Spirit of God no longer performs that work on the earth. No longer. At the point of the rapture, he who will let, will let. He's going to turn loose of holding back evil and suddenly all evil has full reign. They can do, they can do anything they want to do and there's, no, there's nothing to hold it back. Imagine a world filled with every demonic force created and loosed on the planet and no spirit to hold it back. What are you going to do? The rest of chapter 12 goes on to describe how these demons pursue and persecute Israel. Oh, how he hates Israel. And her children, verse number 17, persecute Israel and the rest of her children. Who would that be? That's all the Gentile believers now living on the earth in this tribulation. A reference to both Jewish and Gentile believers and how the Lord mercifully and faithfully protects his own. That takes us to chapter number 13. John introduces us to another key figure in the events of the end times. Now, he's not being introduced at the end of the sixth seal because chronologically that's where he'd come on the scene. No, these intervals are meant to take us back and say, oh yeah, I didn't tell you about the Antichrist. Right? While, while the trumpets are blowing, the seals are opening, then the trumpets are blowing. Now let's go back. Let me tell you about him who was introduced as the anti against Christ instead of Christ, that man. 
Let me tell you some about him. Is that important? Absolutely, right? Because we've not been introduced to this character yet. His character is not chronologically between seven and six and seven trumpet. It, it, this is an interval, right? And so he's filling in blanks for us. Now we know who the Antichrist is. John chapter 13, John introduces to us another key figure in the events of the end times, the Antichrist. John uses vivid language to describe this man whom he calls the beast. He is an influential, blasphemous world political leader who rises to power in the second half of the tribulation. The beast wages aggressive war against the people of God on earth and blasphemes the Lord and his heaven. John says the Antichrist is supported by an evil companion they call the false prophet who performs demonically powered signs and wonders to lend credibility to the Antichrist. He'll even set up an idol to the Antichrist and harness demonic power to make the idol speak, further leading people to worship the beast. As already noted, at this point of the tribulation, the world is overrun with demons and demonic influence. Demonic power infests every area of life. Demons control virtually everything. That's illustrated where John explains that taking part in society requires taking the mark of the beast. Verse 16. Without that mark, people cannot buy or sell. They're effectively outcasts. Verse 17. People often ask about the significance of the number 666. It really just is the number of man, imperfect. The number of seven is perfect. Everywhere you find it in the Bible, it refers to perfect. Seven days to create it. Sixth day he was created. Man was created. And man is simply the number of man. Don't try to turn it into anything. They have figured out some pretty wacky stuff to do with that number. The Bible doesn't tell us what it does, so don't speculate about it. What we do know is that it's not seven. It's six, six, six. As imperfect as you can get, me and you, man. But if you don't have this mark, you won't buy, you won't sell. So unless you've got your own garden and one of them meteors ain't hit it, you got a problem. Right? Where you going to get your groceries? Because I promise you, Kroger's will be closed. Huh? The farmer's market will not be open. Chapter number 14. Chapter number 14. We still have not seen the seventh trumpet, the third woe delivered. Chapter number 14 is another explanatory interval. It's another preview of Christ's ultimate victory. It starts with the celebration of the 144,000 witnesses as they sing a new song to the Lord. That army of witnesses has much to praise God for. God seals and protects them from harm. They make it through the fiercest persecution in history. and They do so unscathed. They minister and thrive under the least hospitable conditions imaginable. Now, when these men were introduced, when these 144,000 evangelists were introduced, he didn't tell us all this stuff. Right? This is stuff he wants us to know. And so he's stopping the, the video for a moment and he's taking us back and he's giving us 
more detail about some folks who have already been introduced in chapter number 7. That's all this is. And so he says from there, John quickly shifts his attention to the proclamation of three angels, each one warning about siding with Antichrist against God. John says Christ will return in glory and that the justice he meets out against his foes will be swift and terrible. That's depicted by sickles and the wine press. Terrible destruction. The kind of destruction John describes here is a preview of what's to come in the battle of Armageddon. The wine press is used to paint a particularly gruesome picture of God's judgment. John graphically describes the severity of the battle, which, although it will take place outside of Jerusalem, will result in enough spilled blood to cover the entire nation of Jerusalem five feet deep. It's literally a bloodbath. That brings us to chapters 15 and 16. The third woe, the seventh trumpet, opens. John returns now to the scene in heaven in chapter 15 as the men and women who have faithfully persevered against the Antichrist sing songs celebrating the redemptive work of the Lord on behalf of his people. One is the song of Moses, Exodus 15, 1 through 18. It's a celebration song of God's victory and deliverance, one that those who overcome the Antichrist can uniquely identify with. They also sing the song of the Lamb, previously sung in chapter 5, but they sing this one, verses 8 through 14, or in verses 3 and 4. The jubilant celebration is a strong contrast to the terrifying destruction the Lord has in store in chapter 16. Starting in verse 2 and coming in rapid fire succession, chapter 16. In rapid fire succession, we have these final seven vials or bowls or plagues. Whichever your Bible may say. The seven bowls of judgment are poured out on the earth, punishing those who have taken the mark of the beast. The first bowl results in painful, possibly cancerous sores. The second bowl, verse number three, turns the ocean to blood killing every living thing in the sea. The third bowl has a similar effect on the rest of the waters. God is no longer destroying by thirds. John is now seeing and describing total destruction. The fourth bowl was poured out onto the sun, making it so hot that it burns men on earth, scorching them to death. And instead of repenting, John says, they harden their hearts and blaspheme God. The fifth bowl plunges the world, including the Antichrist government, into darkness. And because there was no light, people were much more susceptible to injury. John says that the pain they incur in the darkness is so intense it causes them to gnaw their tongues in agony. The sixth bowl of judgment is poured out into the Euphrates, drying up the river and preparing the way for the kings of the east as they prepare for the great battle of Armageddon. The Euphrates being dry opens up a clear path for armies to walk across into Jerusalem. Historically, the plains of Megiddo have figured in key battles for the Israelites. Barak's victory, Gideon's victory, Even Napoleon himself called it the greatest battlefield he had ever seen. 
the plains of Megiddo. But as John made clear earlier, the effects of the war will stretch far beyond the geographical limits of this battlefield. That's the six bowls. The seventh bowl signals the completion of God's wrath, the end. It begins with a pronouncement from heaven, it is done. God will punctuate the completion of his wrath with the most powerful earthquake in earth's history. The great city Jerusalem will be split into thirds, preparing it for its central place in the millennial kingdom. As the earth convulses, John says, every island disappears. The mountains are not found. And giant hailstones cause unimaginable death and destruction. God's destruction has been considerable but it's finished for now. In chapter 17, we have an interval. Now, we haven't seen... Well, wait a minute. Let me make sure where the seventh bowl shows up again. Yeah. So, as far as the, the bowls, that's the last one. But now John's going to give us more information. Chapter number 17 is about the harlot and the beast. More in question, what is religion like? during the Great Tribulation. What is it like for religion during the Great Tribulation? And if it weren't for chapter 17, you wouldn't know what's going to take place as far as religion is concerned. In chapter 17, John answers the question, what is religion like during the Tribulation? He gives a glimpse of the inner workings of the false worship of the beast, the Antichrist. The true church is often referred to as Christ's bride. By contrast, John refers to the false religion of Antichrist as the harlot. For a long time, the beast and the harlot will work in concert, promoting political and religious deception. But in the end, the beast will consume her, setting himself up as the unquestioned leader of both systems, religious and political. The beast will rule. It's likely this occurs at the same time the false prophet establishes and demonically animates an idol in support of the worship of Antichrist. All false religions are united in the following and worshiping of Antichrist. Chapter 18 brings us to the great city of Babylon and its destruction. This is an interval sharing this as information. John answers another important question in chapter 18. What will the commerce be like? What will the economic system be like during the Great Tribulation? He refers to the last major world economic system as Babylon the Great and says it's become a dwelling place of demons. Like everything else on earth, it's overrun by demonic forces and that demonic influence brings it to its ruin. Everything is destroyed. In contrast, the calamity that John maintains, John maintains a heavenly perspective the devastation is awful, but it's the result of God's plan to purify and reclaim the world. Like other aspects of God's redemptive plan, it is both sweet and bitter. John reminds us to rejoice in the Lord, accomplishing His will, even amid the ruins. Verse number 20. That brings us to verse number 19. Chapter number 19, sorry. Because God's wrath is completed, heaven is rejoicing. Chapter 19 records the celebration as heaven prepares for the establishment of the kingdom on earth, the second coming of Christ. Verse 7 quotes the chorus in heaven. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself 
ready. Notice that the marriage of the Lamb does not take place until the tribulation is over. Why? Because his bride was not complete. Now she is. Now she is. And we're going to find out what that was like. Starting in verse number 11, John comes face to face again with the full glory of the risen Christ. He writes, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. If you're a believer, you're in this passage too. Verse 14 says, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. All redeemed people return under the command of the Lamb to wipe out evil and establish his kingdom on earth. In verses 17 through 21, John covers the events of Armageddon. This is the final seventh bowl being shown here, including the capture of the beast and the false prophet and the elimination of Satan's armies. Chapter 20 begins with the incarceration of Satan as he's bound for a thousand years in the abyss. Okay, the false prophet and the beast were cast into the lake of fire. Satan, however, is not. He is bound for 1,000 years. That kicks off Christ's thousand-year reign on earth during which he allows the saints to run, rule alongside him. That's verse number four. At the same time, there will still be people living on the earth, including many who don't follow Christ. Even after everything they've seen and heard, sinners are still hard-hearted when it comes to the truth. Now, that's one I'd like to talk about, but we've been running out of time. After the thousand years is over, Satan is briefly let loose. He uh, gathers up an innumerable force of people, pulls that whole army together, and that's when this whole thing is brought to a final end. Heaven rains down fire and consumes Satan's army. He is thrown into the lake of fire for eternal torment and punishment, and God's people are finally free of their enemy. After that, John witnesses the great white throne judgment, watching as death and Hades themselves are cast into the lake of fire and brimstone forever. Chapters 21 and 22 closes the book with descriptions of a new heaven and a new earth. He hears these words, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God shall be, God himself will be among them. It's a place devoid of pain, suffering, tears, death. It's an eternal state of contentedness in the Lord. He meets our every need as we enjoy eternity with him. John's last exhortation, his last gospel invitation in verse 17, where he writes, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, let the one who wishes to take the water of life freely come. John bids men and women to come and partake of the salvation only available through the glorious risen Christ because one day it will no longer be available. As he writes in chapter 22, verse 11, let the one who does wrong still do wrong, the one who is filthy, filthy still, let the one who is righteous be righteous still, 
one who's holy, holy still. In other words, whatever you are, when you enter in eternity, you're going to be that forever. For who, we who know and love the Lord have a responsibility in light of John's prophecy based on what's coming, perhaps soon, we must preach the gospel of the risen Christ boldly and clearly to all those who will listen. Their eternity depends on. And it's 827. Wow. <laughs> we made it. We made it. I know that was fast. But I hope the, I hope the method shared will help you now as you go back and actually do the study. Right? We, we, just, we were really high and we were just flying over this stuff. But hopefully what you picked up on will help you not be intimidated to go back and simply tackle the scripture and just believe what it says. Believe it for what it says. Just remember how to tackle it and what you're looking at when you're looking at it. And that'll help keep it straight in your mind. Now, we've got a few minutes uh, anybody with questions? I got one, but I want to know if anybody else has got one. Uh, I have a comment. Probably everybody in the room probably would want to tell their people, lost people, John 3.16. Mm-hmm. But I wonder what they would think if we were to tell them about Revelation for their <laughs> eternal destiny. Right. Right. And, and that's a part of this book that I think we've avoided it errantly. That, that sharing this truth often ought to be something that even our lost people need to know. I would fear it. Um, somebody else? I heard a guy, uh, a supposed preacher, stand up and say that if you have been saved from fear, you are practicing religion. And that just blew my mind in the sense of just exactly what he said. When I got saved, I didn't get saved because I wanted to go to heaven. I got saved because hell become real to me. And I didn't want to go there. And like you just said, we are in error, have left that part out. Even as a child, I'm taught that God so loved the world that he come to save me. But what did he save me from? And it tells me right there. And how many people don't know that is is the scary thought that yeah. they're looking at life going, what's he saving me from? Yeah, yeah. what is hell? Because we've hit from the... Not just what is hell, but what is, what is, what is torment? Yeah, yeah, what are you in for your life? Someone else? Some people are, are going to go through all this tribulation and still survive it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, there are some. Not, not a lot, but there are some. The 144,000 go all the way through. They're sealed through the tribulation. I mean, other people. It said that there would still yeah. be left. There are some that do make it through. Again, most will be martyred. Right? Most are going to die. Well, un- apart from the Spirit of God, they, they couldn't make it through. Apart, uh, Jesus even said, except these days be shortened, nobody would make it through. But he did, he did. He ended it. He showed up and he saved the remaining that were living. Now, all right, so time for my question. All right, so at, at, at the end, the Battle of Armageddon, right? Everybody, everybody that's wicked... 
killed. God gets everybody that's saved, everybody that's with him, and the thousand year reign of Christ begins. One thousand years on this earth. Now, we already know this earth is a mess. It is is tore up. It is totally unrecognizable from anything it was before. Now, if you go back into the old, all the Old Testament scriptures, what you're going to find is that that thousand year reign, that that prophetic vision of Daniel and of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and some of the others, what they talk about this thousand year reign, they said the lion would lay down with the lamb. They said the lion would eat the hay that the ox eats. That's different. It said that if a child dies at a hundred, he's a child. Meaning the lifespan of people probably is more like it was in the day of Noah. We're living forever, right? We're going to be here in glorified bodies. I don't know visible or invisible. I believe visible. Just like there's angels in this room right now, I don't have any doubt of that. But we can't see them, right? but we entertain angels unaware all the time, right? Those beings are there. On the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, so here's my question, right? Everything's going to change. The Bible said the deserts will break forth with water. The briar will no longer come up. The earth will give forth its right. It's going back to the Garden of Eden. It's going back, right? For the thousand years that the Lord sits on the throne of His father, David. That's what they prophesied, and He will sit there. For a thousand years, and he will rule with a rod of iron. Now, we perfect. We won't sin, right? But, but we're the redeemed, right? We're the ones ruling in the priests of God. There's no dying. No, not for us. There's no dying for us. But I believe also the inhabitants of the earth, the ones that are living when he comes back, right? I think they're going to live for a long time. But the other thing that has to happen is procreation. You say, how so? After a thousand years when Satan is loosed for a season, he gathers an army which cannot be numbered. Where did they come from? We don't know how many people can be made in a thousand years. Right? I mean, they died 70 years old and we got 8 billion on the earth right now. And ain't none of them been alive for a thousand years. There's a lot of people could be on the earth in one thousand years. But what that means to me is they got they gotta be babies born all the time. Right? Okay, we'll take that, right? Because they're living people, right? That's not us, right? We we glorified, redeemed, live forever. But but they're alive. They're, They're bodies, they're people. And we rulers and priests over them, over all the earth. And by the time a thousand years has gone by, they guarantee you there's billions and billions again. How many dickens does the devil find enough people to stand against the glorious Christ who sit on the throne of David for 1,000 years, the perfect, blessed Lamb of God? I found that terribly difficult for my mind to believe he could find one person that didn't love him. But he found an innumerable 
host. And he gathered them from the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to kill Christ. And that's when fire rains down out of heaven and destroys every bit of it. Right? And that's when eternity comes. Right? That's when eternity begins, is at the end of the thousand-year reign, when, when God ultimately destroys it all. Right? Except for the believers. Right? And then the only thing left, and then the next thing to happen is the great white throne judgment. Right? All dead and hell gives up everybody that died unbelieving in Christ. They're all judged. Everybody's cast into the lake of fire, and finally death and hell's cast in there. Don't need them no more. And we go into eternity forever and ever and ever. That's really hard. That's to pretty hard to grasp, ain't it? Yeah. But thank God I'm saved. Amen. Right. See, I've always got lost right there at the, uh, the thousand year reign. Never could wrap my head around the logic of why he'd want to come back for a thousand years just to destroy everything and then go back. See, if you bring it out like that, that makes sense. Because if you go back and start looking, what was it? The Bible says Methuselah was 975 years old. Moses was, what, 950, somewhere around? 800 something, yeah. yeah so if time went back and people's living to that age again, <clears throat> because of all the stuff that's kills us now with the age that it does. I mean, what we're breathing is bad for us. The Old if Testament. we go back to that and start repopulating the earth again to re, for him to have that army, that makes all the sense for the thousand years because now there's a purpose behind the thousand years. Well, as I think about it, and, and you know, when, when we get to the end of the thousand years and the devil's loosed, right, and he goes from the four corners of the earth, gathers all these unbelievers, they won't be unbelievers outwardly. Not outwardly. Right? What, what the Bible says is that Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. And he's got millions and millions and millions of kings and priests that are ruling with him. And there will be no outward sin allowed. I, I believe that part. There will be no outward sin allowed. But outward sin's not the problem ever anyway. It's, right. it's, it's, the, inward. it's the heart. It's the heart that convicts man. It's the heart that makes him guilty. And those exist. Yeah, even with the... But then I thought, well, he was on earth before and they didn't let him. That's right. Why would I think man would be different then? So you're talking about the ones that lived through the tribulation going to be the ones... That's where the population starts, right? It's not hard to fathom, right? God started it again with eight, four couples. Not a big deal. But with that being said, too, even through this great tribulation, there were people that didn't believe, even through all those things that they seen. Hardened their heart. So even with all that, they still cursed God. So these that are left, that are not believers, now, the ones that are left are believers, right? When he takes over the thousand-year reign, all those wicked are dead. So we're starting with a good crew, but Adam and Eve were good until they fell. Now, these that were that come through the tribulation, these are saved, born-again believers, but they're offspring. Don't have a chance. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, they have a chance. They, they, can, they can believe or not believe. What, what amazes me is that they don't believe. Christ is on the earth with us a thousand years, and they are watching glorified Amen. Bill Suttles walking around. And yet they can somehow not believe that that is the Savior of the world. And yet, and yet it has to happen. Otherwise, where's the devil get those that were unbelievers to stand against the millennial reign of Christ at the end of the period? John, do you have a question? Uh, no, I was just, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the year of man is six. So God said man ruled the world 6,000 years. You know, some theorize the tribulation ends 6,000 years and you have a thousand year reign, bringing the number to seven, which mimics, you know, God's timeline, you know, seven correlation. Oh, yeah, all of those are things that you can do. They're just not written in Scripture that way, right? Those are, those are things that you can grab from out here and combine them together. I heard one like this, that if you start at 100 and you make 100A, 101B, 102C, you can take Hitler, H-I-T-L-E-R, and you add up all of those three-digit numbers and it equals 666. Okay, duh. He was not Antichrist, right? He dead. (laughs) And the tribulation ain't happening. But you see what they do with that number, right? Because people want the fantastic, right? They want those things that they can really squeal about. I think it's better just for us to grab hold of the fact that six is the imperfect number and represents me. And that makes me so dependent on my Savior. Praise the Lord. I need Him to be seven. Right? I will never be seven apart from Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. But with Him in my heart, one day I'm going to make it to seven. Amen. One day I'm going to, I'm going to be with Him. Amen. And I'm going to be perfect. Um, the other thing is... is if you want to buy and sell in the devil's world, you're going to have to stay imperfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. you got to sacrifice to be a child of God. That's always been in the cards. Yes, yes, sir. Right? He said, don't, you know, man, don't start building unless he knows what it's going to cost, unless he don't finish. You need to know what you're getting into when you get born again, right? Because there's a cost to it. It'll cost you. I'll tell you right now, I'd much rather pay now than pay later. To be born again is is all in the world. Now, I want to say this again. We've got to quit. We're we're past time. Thank you for coming this week. but, But I want to say this. If you go through the book of Revelations and suddenly the light comes on for you and you see something and you say, well, that preacher was nuts. That's fine. <laughs> that is fine. What I really want to make sure is that you're born again and going to heaven. Yeah. All that other will sort itself out. I have a great opportunity, I think, and, and I'll be honest with you, this last two weeks have opened my eyes to some things. And that, that I thank God for that. I've been thanking you for it. He has opened my eyes to some truth that was black and white. And that made me feel so foolish. And I just repented again this morning how foolish and small and insignificant when I realized that it was there in black and white the whole time and I just didn't believe it. That's the problem. I didn't believe it. 
And so I just want to challenge you today to do your own study. And don't do it in just Revelations. If you're going to study Revelations, you better get right with the rest of 65 books. Because that's what's going to help you to rightly divide the word of truth. Right? Study to show thyself approved, a workman unto God that needs not be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. So if, if you come to a conclusion that it, you know, you just don't line up with what I shared with you. Uh, it, and, and let me preface this. Tonight's part was a summary view, right? So that even makes me feel good, mushy. I don't like summary views. But it was the only way to get us to the end. So you got at least a glimpse down at what was going on. My hope was that it will help you in your personal study of this book so that when you dive deeper, you've had one shot over this. And you've got, a, you've got a chance knowing how to study this that will help you bring that, that whole thing in, in your own heart and mind. So uh, I, I hope it does help. It has helped me. And it, it really has set me free on some things. And, and I am grateful for His Word. And uh, thankful for what He's shown me and what it's, what it's done for me. So. All right, tomorrow night we've got commencement. Um, I'm going to ask you to pray for Brother Dustin. I've asked him to stand tomorrow night. felt like it's what God wanted him to do, and I, I believe it's in it's his. So trusting in that, we're going to come together and have a prayer for Mormon T. Teller and his wife, Faith. And uh, I'm going to ask you to pray for healing. Uh, but most of all, that the will of God would be done and that the hearts involved would be moved by it. So... Amen. Everybody that would like to join us, would you just come forward with us? Let's just join together as we pray. Father, thank you for the testimony. Thank you for your Holy Spirit.